All right, you guys. Sawete discipuli, sawete omnes. Welcome to another episode of Latin in Layman's, where I'm a revamping this stuff because my lovely cousin named Sloan Connerly, shout out to him, the homie G that hooked me up with this awesome microphone. So I am starting to redo this and uh, with a lot better quality. And, you know, I've just, I'm, I'm honing in my craft. Uh, you know, I'm, I've been practicing more and more, and I feel like I can bring you better content, better ways in order to understand Latin, as well as grammar, as well as etymology, as well as language in general. We're not just going to be doing Latin um, because, uh, as I tell my students, I don't really think that, you know, people really learn Latin for the sake of Latin. Like, I, like if you do, uh, more power to you. That's awesome. But I learn Latin because it enhances my knowledge of the world around me. And it makes me more inquisitive. It just makes me more um, in tune. Uh, and I look at language and I think about language in a whole different way and how if you can, com can command language, you can really command your life in certain respects. And I just want to show people that like you know, just knowing more gives you more confidence in yourself in order to take on more and more and more. And that's what it's all about at the end of the day is not about motivation. Uh, it's not about willpower. It's about just building the confidence in yourself to know that you can do it, whatever it is. And so that's what I tell my students. That's why I know that they don't like Latin. Maybe some of them do, but at the end of the day, and as it was with me, uh, the reason why I started loving Latin uh, initially, or while I liked it and was interested in it, was simply because I started to learn how to do it. And I had confidence in knowing what I needed to do and how to do it. And you know what? Yeah. And I could get a good grade, right? At the end of the day, I knew I could get a good grade. How many of you guys used to walk into a class or walk into a class where you are solid in that subject, whether you have a math brain or an English brain or whatever? And you walk into that class and you just feel um, like since you know what you what to do um, and you know that you're going to get a good grade, you inherently kind of like like that subject because um, it's something that you don't have to worry about. And on the other hand, how many of you have that class where you dread simply because you have zero knowledge of what's going on in that class and that it's just a source of anxiety? Well, Latin used to be like that for me until I learned that I could do it. And then it was kind of like this scaffolding thing or, you know, this domino effect. The more I could prove to myself I could do it, the more I did it. And then I kept on going. And that's what I want to show my students and where I'm seeing a lot of them. Yo, you guys, if you guys ever listen to this um, podcast, I just graded my first declension case tests for you guys for second semester, my first year here in Colorado Springs. And uh, you guys, oh my God, I have not had so many 100% that I've graded before in my life. I am just really happy and really proud. And that's the SHIT I live for. So you know what? That's what I want to show with Latin is that it's not, it's not a, like, you know, I love Latin because it is historical. It is, it has aspects of science. It, in a way, the way bases plus endings make it very mathematical. And, and just 
you know, it, it, it is. Uh, and I'm sorry, I'm going on this little like soapboxy tangent before I actually get into my lesson. But uh, yeah, I just want everybody to know that Latin is not just a dead language. It is so alive. And although it is dead, in like literally, that makes it objective. So we can go back to it as if it's kind of like this set in stone thing. It's not changing. You know what? Uh, whereas, you know, things like science, you know, is, is always, you know, questioning itself and always trying to prove itself wrong, which is something I love about it. You know, things like that in our present day are continually evolving. We might look 50 years in the future and we're going to look back and we're going to say, wow, we barely knew or scratched the surface on, you know, our understanding of the human body, or we barely know anything about the brain as is, um, you know, I've, we're, we're continually learning. So now what I love about Latin is that you can look back and it's the set in stone thing. So we can use it as kind of a reference. All right. So yeah, um, let's call this an everything type of podcast, you know, an everything type of learning. That's what I tell my students with Latin. It's an everything type of class. We're, we're enhancing uh, just ourselves in general. Uh, individually and we're proving to ourselves that even sixth graders can learn a rigorous language such as latin sixth graders seventh graders eighth graders okay so it's never too late to pick up a new hobby to pick up uh, a new interest or a new language so without further ado Let's go ahead and dive into the understanding of the first declension as in contrast to my first conjugation that I went over last uh, couple episodes ago. All righty. Thank you guys uh, for that little interjection. Uh, Got to do that when I'm doing these. So, um, you know, just if you want to fast forward through them, you know, I... Not trying to monetize anything here. I'm just trying to spread knowledge. So, diving into the understanding, we are critically understanding the first declension because Latin is where I learned all of my grammar. Kid you not, all of it. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely all of it. Because you know, I never really you know looked at a sentence and understood what my indirect object was or my subject or my verb whereas now i i see it and it's kind of like this yeah anyways no more side tangents i need to get into my lesson all righty mr connerly aka liam connerly um so as with conjugate conjugation the term declension has two meanings in latin okay so firstly it's the process of joining a case ending to its noun base and second, it is a term used to refer to one of the five categories of nouns distinguished by the sound ending of the noun base, which would be, um, you know, I'll get into those later. Firstly, let's look at the three basic characteristics of every Latin noun. So first, case, second, number, and third, gender. All Latin nouns and adjectives have these three grammatical qualities, all right? My students know this. We, um, we have the masculine, feminine, and neuter gender. Um, we have singular or plural, and we have our cases that we'll get into in a hot sec, right? Our fancy words that really just mean simple things in grammar, as my students very well know. 
first case, how the noun functions in the sentence. That is, is it a subject, the direct object, the object of a prep preposition, or any other of many uses? Uh, that kind of works. Anyways, secondly, number. Is it singular or plural, as I mentioned before? And third, gender. Is it masculine, feminine, or neuter? Latin has a neuter gender. You can think of Latin as being ahead of its time and that it already, in a way, saw the gender neutrality and the non-binary side of the equation already. So there you all are far left. Or, well, not even far left, just in general. Ever, uh, never mind. N Every noun in Latin will have one case, one number, and one gender, and only one of each of these qualities, okay? <clears throat> Excuse me. Not COVID, promise. In other words, a noun in a sentence cannot be both singular or plural, right? It can't be, or masculine or feminine, right? It's got to be one of those three, aka the other being neuter. Now, let's look at some basic sentence structure as it applies to Latin grammar, and let's start with this useful but rather stupid-sounding example of a grammar sentence, okay? So listen closely, and then we'll dissect it, okay? So we're all, you got to try and visualize this because I realize, you know, podcasts um, and hearing verbally, some people can learn just simply verbally, but others need that visual uh you know, aspect in order to learn. So try and visualize this, if you will. The grandmother of my girlfriend gave her daughter a coin from her purse, your majesty. Okay. So grandmother is the subject of this sentence, the grandmother, right? Of my girlfriend, of my girlfriend. If you think about that, that's showing possession. Okay. So gave here, well, to give, we know is a verb. Her daughter, which could be also expressed as to her daughter, is the indirect object, right? All right. My students know that an indirect can either, you can either put a two or a four in front of it, and that will make it indirect. All right. So he get, it gave her daughter a coin would be the direct object, right? Gave the coin. That's what she's giving. From her purse is the prepositional phrase consisting of from plus the object of the preposition, purse, her purse more specifically, and finally, your majesty as a direct address, okay? In Latin, these functions are not represented as they are in English by where, where these words are placed in the sentence, by, from, uh, uh, but by the form they take called their case. So all of those terms that I mentioned prior, subject, possession, uh, direct object, indirect object, all of those represent a case in Latin. The next phrase, oh, oh, I'm sorry. So in this first instance, the subject will be nominative for the word grandmother, okay? Nominative is a fancy word for the subject of a sentence. The next phrase of my girlfriend shows possession, which would be the genitive case. Now, we'll skip the verb gave for now since we're looking at cases and verbs don't take cases, all right? Remember that, please. The next noun, her daughter or to her daughter, the indirect object, would be in the dative case if, if this were Latin, okay? A coin, the direct object, would be the accusative case. 
purse, the object of the preposition, would be in the ablative case, and your majesty, the person being directly addressed, would be in the evocative case. Now, let's look at these cases individually. First, how they function, and then how they're formed in Latin. So the nominative case, its primary function is to indicate which noun or nouns serve or serve, serves or serve as the subject of the sentence. The subject of the sentence is the noun or nouns which perform the action of the verb, right? So a sentence can have more than one subject. For instance, Caesar and his army attack Gaul. In this case, Caesar and the army are both the subject of the sentence. Cool beans. Moving on. The genitive case... The primary function of the genitive case is to, to show possession. Basically, that one noun is owned or in the possession of another noun. For instance, the man's house. The possessive, uh, the possessive man's with that ticky mark S, right? The apostrophe S would be in the genitive case in Latin. This can also be expressed as the man of the house, right? The man's house, the man of the, ha the house of the man, rather, um, both mean the same thing. Note, English has two ways of expressing possession, of or that taking mark S. Uh, taking mark S on the inside for singular, and the out, uh, the taking mark would be on the outside of the S for the plural. So, okay, yeah, I don't have anything else to say about the genitive. Let me get a little swiggle water here. Hydrate or dehydrate, as I always say. The dative case is the next one, and it primarily functions to indicate which noun or nouns are the indirect object of the sentence. That is, who or what benefits from the action of the verb. To have the dative at all in the sentence requires a special type of verb, one whose meaning includes the possibility of benefits such as buy, build, tell, lend, sell, show, give, as in buy me a diamond, build me a castle, tell me you love me, um, lend me your fortune, send me the space to show you the gifts I can give you, uh, I don't know. Um, English has two ways of indicating an indirect object. It can use the prepositions to or for, as in I gave this to you or I did a favor for you, right? I did. I would be the subject, did would be the verb, a favor would be the direct object, and then to indicate just a little bit more there, for you would be uh, the indirect object because I am doing the favor, that's the direct, that's what's being done, but indirectly I'm doing it for someone in the background, right? As my students uh, reference a lot, I do my homework for Mr. Connerly, or I do my homework for a good grade, or I behave for Mr. Connerly, right? Ha, ha, ha. Yes, because we all know we deal with a lot of behaviors in middle school. In fact, I consider myself a dad at this point, and I am a pretty dank dad at this point, but they are all my proxy children. Uh, yeah, they've taught me a lot. Appreciate y'all, especially the patience. Ooh, boy oh. Ooh, boy. <laughs> all right. Sorry. Side tangent. Uh, and a little shout out to all my students. 
Uh, so, uh, hmm, do I have any more to say about Nah, I don't think so. The accusative case. The primary function of the accusative case is to indicate which noun serves or noun serve as the direct object of the sentence. The direct object receives the action of the verb. Simple, straightforward. We know this, right? S-V-O, subject, verb, object. The accusative case is also used to indicate the object of certain prepositions like odd or inter, odd, to or towards, inter, between. We'll learn more about those prepositions later on, though, so don't worry about that. Here are some examples of direct objects receiving the action of the verb. The boy drove the chariot. What did the boy drive? The chariot. Chariot receives the action of the verb drive and the direct object and is the direct object of the sentence, right? The Roman army attacked Gaul. What did the Roman army attack? Gaul. There we go. Gaul is my direct object, a.k.a. the accusative. The Senate praised the general for his bravery. Oh, the general is the direct object because it receives the action of praising from the Senate, right? But there's an indirect object as well. What for? For his bravery. There we go. A little hidden dative case in there. Skibble-de-beep, skibble-de-bop. Note, there can be two or more direct objects in a sentence, okay? So often when the sentence contains multiple verbs, such as you will have no problem with English grammar if you study Latin, there are two direct objects in this sentence, okay? So the first is problem, the object of you will have. The second is Latin, the direct object of study. The second verb is in this sentence, the one inside of the if clause, okay? So that's, you know, that's just my little note bene. Uh, but uh, whatever. Don't worry about it for now. I just like to get into that kind of stuff to flesh out any sort of um, irregularities. The ablative case, the primary function of the ablative case, at least for now, is to indicate which noun or nouns serve as the object of, of certain prepositions. By prepositions, we mean words like by, with, from, uh, kind of locative in a way, locational based. But the use of the ablative in Latin is far more pervasive than that, okay? Very pervasive. There are so many ablatives, I can't even, there are a lot. Okay, so it is in many ways the catch-all case, right? So it can show means, oh, oh, the instrument of which something was being done. It can also indicate manner, the way in which something was done. Time, the time at which something was done. Separation, the two things are apart from each other. That two things are apart from one, one or each other, rather. All these and many other uses besides. Wheelock is right to call the ablative case adverbial in as much as it usually specifies how something happens, for instance, with speed, or in good time, or by you. We'll spend several lessons later on in the in you know episode, episodes uh, learning different uses for the ablative, but until then, we'll use the ablative only to serve as the object of certain prepositions. Okay, so we're going to think of it as the prepositional phrase and the uh, or the object of the preposition. Okay, so. That is that for it. And then we're going to go into the, the vocative case real quick. The 
I don't really, I don't go over this with students because I find this to be a rather inconsequential case in, in terms of studying. And I don't really want to like add more on to middle schoolers who are already learning this kind of stuff. So there are lots of, lots of words. And I think that I can nix this one for the most part. The only use of which is to show direct address. Okay. So in other words, the noun that is being called or directly spoken to, such as Marcus, I am talking directly to my friend Marcus or you there or in prayers. Oh, great Jupiter or uh, in several aspects. Rather, the vocative is the easiest case to learn in Latin. So that's why I just like leave it for later on. You know, if they actually really are uh, um, super interested in diving more grammarly into Latin, it has only one use and the form is almost always identical to the nominative, which is beautiful also. And because nominatives and vocatives are almost always the same, rarely is the vocative listed in declensional systems, making it just one less thing you have to memorize, aka why I don't really bother it with it with it that much. So one of the greatest challenges for English speakers in learning Latin is the difference between the way Latin represents grammar and the way English does. In English, to show the word is functioning as the subject, for instance, we put it in a special place in the sentence. For, for example, we say, the boy loves the girl. We know that it is the boy loving the girl, not the girl loving the boy, because the boy precedes the verb and the girl follows it. Because of this word placement means that the boy is the subject of the sentence and the doer of the verb action, and the girl is the direct object, the receiver of the verb action. I know it's a lot of grammar. Latin is a lot of grammar. I do like to delve into all other aspects of it. Uh, later on, but reversing their placement in the sentence reverses the sense. The girl loves the boy would be exactly opposite from the boy loving the girl. But in Latin, none of this is true. Word placement does not show grammar. The Romans instead used the endings attached to the end of a noun to show the way it functioned in a sentence. That means they could use they could put a noun anywhere in a sentence and it still and still know that it functioned as the subject or the direct object because the ending of the sentence told them how the word was being used grammatically. In other words, you could say, you could take the word boy and put it in the nominative case. And because it was in that form, the Romans would know it was the subject of the sentence. That is, it was the boy who loved the girl, not the girl who loved the boy. It didn't matter where the boy came in the sentence. That makes it absolutely essential to know that, know how a noun declines and uses of various cases because only by doing that can you figure out the basic grammar of any Latin sentence. All right. So it's very important to remember that. Adjectives are the part of speech and the function of adjectives is that they modify nouns. Modify is the term grammarians use when they mean an adjective delimits the meaning of a noun. That is, it indicates which particular noun out of the group is being referred to. We'll explore adjectives much more in class, but for the sake of time and not, not to say too much about them now, we'll say this. The real contribution to, of adjectives to, la to language is that they allow us to have an overwhelming number of nouns. Allow us not, I'm sorry, they allow us not to have an overwhelming use or a number of nouns. The central thing you need to know about Latin adjectives is that they agree with the nouns. They go with its case 
gender, and number. You'll hear me say that and say that many times, many, 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 many times in class or, well, in this uh, journey that we'll take in Latin and layman. So if you think about it, that means that the adjectives have to change their endings the same way that nouns change their endings. If the adjective is to agree with the noun, that it goes with. Okay, so therefore, just like nouns, adjectives decline. So I'm just going to go over this really quickly because it's really hard. I like to draw tables in order to indicate the first declension as a table. Because on one side, you have nominative, generative, dative, accusative, and ablative on the far left column. And then you have two others to the right, which are going to be singular and plural. And then I would decline the endings as such. The endings for the nominative going nominative, genitive, dative, accusative, and ablative would be ah, I, I, am, ah, I, a room, is, us, is. Okay? I can't really go into that anymore because I feel like it just sounds like gibberish if you just hear me saying a bunch of word, verb, or noun endings. But it would decline, decline as such if I used the word fama, which meant fame. Okay? So if I said fama, famai, famai, fama, fama, Famai, famarum, famis, famas, famis. Each of those endings, so as you can see, a noun can decline uh, in 10 different ways. Five in the singular, five in the plural, and they can each mean a different thing depending on what ending you put at, on the end of it. The translation of the noun with an adjective is no different from the translation that we've already studied with the noun, okay? So we won't really get into that. Um, it's just we will really get into much more of that later on. But uh, as for now, that is what I have for you in terms of understanding and declining uh, the nominative, genitive, dative, accusative, and ablative, and understanding that those fancy dancy words really just mean simple, simple things. So I thank you very much for sticking with me if you actually got this far. Um, and might I say tempus est discerere.